0: Let us pray. Based on your promises, O Lord, you have given us faith and strength to promise our own ways to follow you. You are our portion and all our riches. Our own strength is not up to the task. By your word and your mercy, enliven us and fill us with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear fellow redeemed, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for our meditation this morning is from the 119th Psalm, the 8th stanza, verses 57 through 64. Please rise. The Lord is my share. I have said that I will keep your word. I have sought your kindness with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your sayings. I have surveyed my ways and I have turned my feet to your testimonies. I hurry, I don't delay to keep your commandments. Ropes of the wicked have surrounded me. Your law I do not forget. In the middle of the night I get up for thanksgiving to you for your righteous judgments. I am united to all who fear you and who keep your regulations. Your mercy, O Lord, fills the earth. Teach me your engraved commands. These are your words, Heavenly Father. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is true. Amen. When Abraham and his nephew Lot discovered the conflict between their herdsmen and the difficulty that they had of sojourning together, they decided to split up. Abraham told his nephew, "'Doesn't the whole land lie before before you? Please separate yourself from me. If you go to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left.'" And there, given the choice, Lot chose the better half. Lot looked up and saw the whole region around the Jordan River as you come to Zoar. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. So Lot chose the region around the Jordan for himself. Lot headed out toward the east, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, and Lot lived among the cities of the region around the Jordan and moved his tent close to Sodom. So, given the choice, wouldn't you or I choose the better portion? Even children know that. They're always comparing with their siblings, aren't they? They're just better than mine. If there were a pile of treasures in front of you and you were given first pick, wouldn't you pick the most valuable, the best out of all those? You do that in an NFL draft, too. Fantasy football. You choose the best first. The devil tried to distract Jesus from the better portion. He took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, I will give you all of these things if you will bow down and worship me. But Jesus rightly discerned what was right and better. Go away, Satan, he said, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And in this psalm, we make a vow to do the same as Jesus. The Lord is my portion, we say. The Lord is my share. I have said that I will keep your word. This is a promise, a vow that we make. But it's also an immeasurable gift that God gives us, that God is our riches. Because of how valuable this is, we desperately seek God's grace. This stanza of Psalm 119 emphasizes what I will do far more than any so far. I have said that I will keep. I have sought. I have surveyed my ways and I have turned my feet. I hurry. But all of this talk about what I do isn't actually prideful in this stanza. We're looking back instead at everything that has come before in our lives. The Lord is my share. I have said that I will keep your word. This is what we do when we remember our baptism or our confirmation. When we are baptized, we confess or our sponsors confess for us our faith in the triune God with the words of the Apostles' Creed stating that we believe this with our whole heart. And when we're confirmed, we vow that we will, by the grace of God, continue steadfast in this covenant of our baptism, even to the end, meaning even if we die for that confession. And you have the blessing to be reminded of this covenant, this grace, each and every divine service. The words in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit are the words of your baptism. And so again and again you receive there the triune God as your share. He gives you His name. At the end of the service, too, He clothes you with His name in the benediction. And throughout the whole service, that's really the whole point. He is serving you, giving you Himself. It's when we recognize how important this is that we remind ourselves, I have said that I will keep your word. That's how horrifying it would be to lose that blessing. So we ask, I have sought your kindness with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your sayings. Again, this might sound prideful or bold on the surface, and it is bold, but it's not a groundless boldness. We seek God's kindness. We seek His grace. And these are things that we can demand of Him because of His sayings. And that is that He has already promised to give us these things. Here, Jesus, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep seeking and you will find. Keep knocking and it will be opened for you. God invites you to call on Him, to demand His grace, because He's already given it to you freely. Look at the whole story. I have surveyed my ways, and I have turned my feet to your testimonies. Look back over your experience, over your life, over your deeds, and your words, even your thoughts. Look back over all of those things, and you'll see how wrongly you've walked. How weaving your pathway has been. how You haven't stayed true to the Lord's path. There may be sins that are more obvious, that even others know more clearly. But then what comfort to know that there is forgiveness for them from Jesus. Like the tax collectors and sinners that Jesus ate with, you can have solace in Jesus' presence for you. That he will not exclude you from the kingdom of heaven, even though you are rejected from the society of men. And then there are also more secret sins. And surely this means thoughts that you've had that no one else knows. But also those slippery, wicked things that you've done without the eyes of anyone to judge you. And they haven't caught you yet. You know God's commandments, right? You've learned them, you've memorized them and studied them. So you know when you've done wrong. And we're not to slacken those commandments because Jesus warned, so whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Instead, look closely at that mirror of God's law, at the ugliness of all your evil deeds. Jesus was speaking of people like the Pharisees when he said, hypocrite, first remove the beam from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. People like the Pharisees whom John the Baptist rebuked. You offspring of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Therefore produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not think of saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Grace, this means, is thought of cheaply by our sinful flesh. This is naturally what you and I will do. Laziness in bearing fruit is the result. When we think little of our sins, especially in comparison to other more obvious sinners, we don't actually believe in the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Instead we think that we get forgiven only because we haven't done too badly. But John preached instead, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent or metanoe in Greek is shav in Hebrew. And that's the word that's used here in this psalm. I have turned my feet to your testimonies. All those words mean to turn around, to turn back. So look at your own way, look at your own pathway, and think about the quality of your life and your actions and thoughts and deeds and realize those aren't all that great. I don't want that. I'd rather turn my way towards God's ways, towards his testimonies. And what God has testified is true is this. I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then later he said, it is finished. How narrow is the gate and how difficult is the way that leads to life, Jesus said, and there are few who find it. That's precisely because we resist seeing our own sin. We compare, we judge others worse than we judge ourselves. And even that inclination implies that we are more worthy of salvation. But that's not the point. You and I are completely unworthy of any kindness from God. You and I are worthy only of His wrath. And therefore, when we said in that earlier verse, I have sought your kindness with all my heart, It literally means, I have smoothed your face with all my heart. It's the idea of caressing someone's face in order to appease them, to make them more kindly disposed. God shows us His face in His Word. And when we read that Word, we see the law, we see how we deserve that wrath, we see an angry, frowning face. And when we read that word more diligently, that is how we smooth his face, smoothing those pages of that word, seeking where that kindness is to be found. But see, we don't have to try too hard because it is found. It's obvious there in the gospel where God reveals his face to you of kindness in Jesus. The one who kept the law perfectly, that Jesus, Suffered the wrath that you and I deserved. God turned his angry face toward Jesus so that he turns his kindly face towards you. We're forgiven. We're set on that narrow path, and so I hurry, I don't delay to keep your commandments. This is what we heard early in the Dalit stanza of this psalm, the fourth stanza I will run the way of your commandments. For you shall make room in my heart. Because we have this new life, this firm possession, this lot from God, these riches, we rejoice to keep His commandments. We rejoice to live that new life. And this is again because His mercy gives us this possession firmly. Certainly there are obstacles on this way. We're hurrying, we're not delaying along this way, we're running. But ropes of the wicked have surrounded me, your law I do not forget." We're watching the Olympics nowadays. All those fast runners, is there anything more treacherous to a runner than a rope around his feet? We're lassoed like a calf, you and I, we're captured, we're brought down. Picture Jesus here, they seized him and led him away. They blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who hit you? They crucified him, which includes binding him to that cross with ropes. But even through all of this, your law I do not forget. Jesus didn't forget that law. He could, of course, have gotten himself down. He could have stopped all of his suffering with a word, but he accepted it. He willingly went through with it, and he did so because he knew that law. He knew the Torah, the scriptures, in which God had promised that by the death of his Son, he would redeem the world. He didn't forget the law, but he kept it for you. As a result, when you or I are persecuted, we can remember that law of God as well, what he has done for us, what he has given to us. There's no need for us to try to save ourselves, but we can witness to the wonderful mercy that we have received. There's another sense to this verse in the Hebrew. The word for ropes is also the word for boundary lines or territories. We just talked about surveying our ways and our share, our lot, so we can think of plots of land, again like Abraham and Lot. So in this life, we see the boundary lines laid out all around by the wicked. They've laid claim to everything in this life. So often, all we can see is their riches and our poverty. The contrast between our sinful ways and God's testimonies becomes blurred when we see those comparisons. We're distracted, and instead we see the contrast between our poor ways and the wicked's rich ways. So how can we fight off that temptation? How do we fight off all the attacks of the world, even those subtle ones that aren't direct attacks? Your law I do not forget. In his word, you see the ultimate riches that God gives you. You can see that yours is the life of Jesus. You have already died to the world, and you're alive to him. You're a royal child in God's kingdom. You're given glory and eternal life, and that's not because of your own merits. That's the firm gift of God. In the stanza of this psalm just previous, there was the line, I remember in the night your name, O Lord. And now we say, in the middle of the night, I get up for thanksgiving to you, for your righteous judgments. And here's where we see the best defense against those ropes of the wicked, that even in the middle of the night when our enemies seem to have all the advantage get up and remember God's righteous judgments that in Jesus he judged you righteous. What can any ropes or any boundary lines do to you then? What comparison can any of those riches make to what you have? Know God's promise. No testing has overtaken you except ordinary testing, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tested beyond your ability, but when he tests you, he will also bring about the outcome that you are able to bear it. See, the Christian life is a daunting proposition. We're not giving anybody an easy road as we ask them to join our church or to join the faith. Difficulty comes from the wicked all around us. We start knowing that personally. It comes from the terror of the night. It comes from a sense of solitude in the world. And it comes even from our own sinful desires and lusts. But God is faithful. Remember that. The testing comes, but God is with you in that testing. God has declared you righteous already. He's given up His Son for you. Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things along with him? Great and mighty riches you have from God. And they include this, that I am united to all who fear you and who keep your regulations. See, not only do we have God with us in the midst of all these trials and these battles against our foes, we have Christian fellowship. This is what we celebrate right here. Gathered together in one house here, we confess what joins us into that one body, the Word of God that keeps us connected in spirit, and that spirit gives us faith, fear in the one true God. And because of this, you and I are in the strongest nation in all creation. And Jesus called us His church and said, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. That's not because of our numbers. It's not because of the individual strength of our members. It's because of that cornerstone, the head, Jesus Christ. God's own Son is our brother, and He's linked arms with all of us all together. So when we confess the creed, or when we sing the salutation to one another, or when we sing our hymns together, we are reinforcing one another's faith. We're singing the battle songs of God's kingdom. We're rejoicing in the riches that we have to support one another. The Apology of the Augsburg Confession defines the church as a fellowship of faith and of the Holy Spirit in hearts. Yet, it says, this fellowship has outward marks so that it can be recognized. These marks are the pure doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments in accordance with the gospel of Christ. This church alone is called Christ's body, which Christ renews, sanctifies, and governs by his spirit. This portion that belongs to the Lord, this church, you see there's a boundary line drawn around us, a line that God has drawn to call us his own. The Lord is my share, we say, and he claims you also as his share. These boundary lines are the Word and the sacraments, given and shared rightly. So you can also know, when you are out in this world, you can know where the true church is. You recognize the boundary lines. So when you hear the Word proclaimed in its truth and purity, slackening neither the law nor the gospel, and when you see the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper administered with the confession of what they are and what they do, what riches they bestow, and what promises they carry, then you know you are with fellow Christians. This kingdom of God is not bound by any physical boundaries, but as we see, your mercy, O Lord, fills the earth. Teach me your engraved commands. God is everywhere, you see. We call this his omnipresence. So there's no country, no state, no city where his gospel is impossible to find. And also there's no soul whom Jesus' blood does not cover. And therefore we fulfill Jesus' command to gather disciples from all nations through his word and sacrament. If that means that we end up in a land that looks less appealing, we know that we have God's word, God's riches, and God's blessing along with us. And all that can be taken literally Or figuratively, perhaps like Abraham, we do literally live in a place more difficult. More difficult for us to see that fellowship or to maintain that joy in the gospel. But God's promise was with Abraham then as it is now with us. Now lift up your eyes, he told Abraham, and look around from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west, because all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your descendants permanently. I will make your descendants like the dust of the earth, so that if a man could count the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be counted. Get up, walk through the length and breadth of the land, because I will give it to you. And he tells you, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. And so it also might be that you're in a job or a house where the gospel is harder to grasp. It might be that health makes it harder, or your family or your friends make it harder. But there is no place, no situation where God's mercy cannot cover you. We know that it can be hard, and it often is, which is why we ask Him, teach me your engraved commands. See, if we've learned nothing else from Psalm 119, it's that we desperately need God's Word to be spoken aloud to us and often. If it were ever silent, we would be lost but it is there for us. And we can take comfort in this too, that even though the wicked have drawn up boundaries for their portions of the world that they have claimed, in reality, none of it belongs to them any more than the area that Lot claimed would remain in Lot's possession. God possesses it all. Even the wicked things he uses for his purposes, which include salvation for you. Pharaoh, and Saul and Ahab and Herod and Pilate and the Roman soldiers and all the other wicked antagonists of the Bible were all used by God to accomplish your salvation. Even Satan himself has been used by God to accomplish your salvation. And this is what it means that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so when you or I find ourselves in less ideal situations, in our living atmosphere, in our jobs, with our money or our abilities, God uses all of those things for the purposes of his kingdom. He has all of it in his power. He has you in his loving hand. You have him also. The Lord is my share. I have said that I will keep your word. You say that again and again. It's a promise that we make. That makes a really good morning prayer or evening prayer even, just that one verse. The Lord is my share. I have said that I will keep your word. Because it's also that immeasurable gift that God gives us. We've said it because God's Holy Spirit gives us Himself, gives us Jesus, gives us faith, gives us life